Well, hey there, my name is Eric Gray, and I'm the Young Adult and Family Minister here at the Regency Church of Christ. I just want to take a minute and say thank you for checking out this message. If you're ever in the Mobile area, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 10 a.m. And to find out more information about Regency or to listen to other messages from this series, we'd love for you to check out our website at regencycc.org. And we're praying that this message will help you grow closer to Jesus. All right, so this morning, I wanted to play a quick game or activity if we can. I've got a few questions, okay? And do this with somebody sitting next to you. Let me go to the next slide. This is how many in a lifetime. Okay, let's go to the next slide. All right, so what you got to do is I've got three choices to a question. And you need to correctly guess the answer to the question that's posed. All the calculations are based on the average North American lifespan of 78 years. All right, here's the first question. How many tests does a person take in a lifetime? 340, 540, 740. All right, answer with someone. Keep score. Make sure you keep score with the person next to you. All right, the answer is A, 340 tests. It feels like more, but 340 tests is how many someone has in a lifetime. All right, let's go to the next question. How many slices of pizza does a person eat over their lifetime? 3,500, 6,400, 12,980. I feel like mine is a lot higher. Uh, let's see what the answer is. Oh, I definitely had that many this summer, but it's A, 3,580 slices of pizza. All right, next question. How many pounds of bugs, oh, this is disgusting. How many pounds of bugs does a person unknowingly eat over their lifetime? Let's just go ahead. What's the answer to this? That's a lot of pounds of uh, bugs. Let's, all right, next question. That's gross. How many hours of YouTube videos would a person watch in a lifetime? I'm assuming this is a person that's growing up now. What do you think the answer is? Let's see what the answer is. It's B, 21,000. And then the last question is this. How many times does a person's heart beat in a lifetime? How many times does your heart beat in a lifetime? And the answer is A, 2.5 billion times in a lifetime. So the purpose of this is to recognize that all of these things, there is a limit to them. You only have so many heartbeats in your life. You only have so much time with your children while they are living at home with you. You only have so many hours that you can put in into your job at work. Only have so much time that you can spend studying while you're off at school. There's a limited amount of everything. And the same is true if we were to put the question up of how many times do does a person get to gather together in a setting like this to worship God? I wonder what the average number of times that would be. Once a week? Every week? Maybe it's less. Maybe it's a, a few times more than that. But the amount of times that we have to do anything in life are limited. And the same is true to our times where we can come together in a setting like this and worship God we're limited in how many times that are. This month, we're going through a series, Living on Purpose. And this morning, I want to talk about worshiping on purpose and what that looks like. As Christians, when we get together, we do certain things. And for me, I've grown up going to church. And so this is all I've ever known. And I wonder sometimes to someone that didn't grow up the way that I did, if this would look strange if it would look odd to them what we do in a gathering like this on a Sunday morning. All across America, all across the world, millions of people are getting together in rooms like this 
And one of the things that they're doing is they're singing. Usually they sit. Sometimes they stand. Usually they face in the same direction. Oftentimes they're facing a blank wall and they sing together. Sometimes they put the words to the songs up on a screen. Sometimes they read the words from a a hymnal, from a book. Sometimes there's no words placed anywhere at all, but they sing together. Some of them are trained singers who are really good at it, but a lot of them are not trained. Most of them maybe aren't even proud of their singing ability, and yet they come and they gather together, and week after week they sing praises to God. A lot of people don't sing all week long. This might be the only time that they sing during the week. Maybe they sing in the shower. Maybe they sing as they're driving along and listening to the radio. But every week, millions of followers of Jesus gather together to sing as part of our worship. And there's part of this that might be a little strange to someone. A bunch of people brought together by what they believe, and they gather together in a room to sing. Try to have a a sense of how unusual that might appear to someone. What we are doing when we are together as we sing in church. Why do we do this? Why do we sing? Why do we sing in our church as part of our worship to God? Well, I want to look at a verse together. Psalm 115. Psalm 115. I want to start in verse 1 through 3. Verse 1 says this, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. If you look at verse 1, this looks a lot like what I see when I look around here this morning. I see worshipers, people saying, it's not us. It's not about us. This is not about me. This is about something else. This isn't about my talent. This isn't about my ego. This isn't about my preferences. This is about something else. This is about God. And then verse 2, we may hear this question asked to us from the world, this question of where is your God? And our answer in verse 3, we, we know the answer to that question, or we, we, we feel like we do. We believe that we do. We know that our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. And sometimes just knowing that can be enough as an answer to the question of where is your God? And so the world is asking the question, where is your God? But in some ways, we want to ask that question right back to the world. Where is your God? What do you believe above everything else to be true? Where do you put your trust in outside of yourself? What do you think is worthy of your time? What do you think is worthy of your energy, your passion? To the world, we might ask the same question. What do you think is worthy of your worship? Because make no mistake, and hear me on this, every Sunday, as millions of followers of Jesus gather in rooms like this all across the globe, we are not the only ones who are worshiping. We are not the only ones who are offering up worship. And what I believe to be true is this. Everyone worships something. Everyone worships something. Whether they like it or not, whether they are aware or not of what they're doing, every human being is designed with the need to worship, just as we're designed with the need to breathe. There's a quote from a a writer, an author, David Foster Wallace. He says this. He says, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism, There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. 
The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for making, choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And he continues, he says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel that you have enough. It's the truth, he says. Worship your body and beauty and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. And then he concludes, he says, the whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. I believe he's right here when he says this. And that we need to pay attention to what it is that we've chosen, whether we're aware of it or not, what we've chosen to be our God, what we've chosen to worship, what preoccupies us. What's the first thing that we think about and the last thing that we think about each day? What drives us when nothing else will? What are we pursuing? What are we clinging to? What is it that brings us fulfillment in life? What it is that we're searching for and that thing that may or may not be there? I believe his quote is right. And that anything of this world that you put your trust in, if it's of this world, he says it will eat you alive. It will seduce you with impossible promises that can't be fulfilled. It will enslave you. It will watch you waste away. It will abandon you to a hopeless search. The things of this world cannot bring lasting peace because the things of this world were never intended to. Going on in our passage in Psalm 115, verse 4 through 8, the psalmist writes, But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak, eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear, noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel, feet, but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Then look at verse 8. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. And so having described where God is in verse 3, the psalmist talks about these gods of the nations. And the way that he describes them, I, I think, is accurate. And at the end in verse 8, he says, people will become like what they worship. What does our culture look like to you? The psalmist says that our culture is what it worships. And so we see what our culture looks like. We should take a look at our culture's idols. Wouldn't you expect a culture that worships fame and celebrity to be as depressed and insecure as ours is? Wouldn't you expect a culture that worships beauty to be as vain and depraved as our culture is? Doesn't it make sense that a culture that worships money and success above all else is as self-centered and greedy as our culture is. When we worship God, on the flip side, we should start to look more and more like God. It's true, or it is true, I believe, that everyone worships something. And so what is the difference between the way that we worship and the way that the world worships? Well, I think there's a couple things. One is an obvious one. Our worship is on purpose. Our worship is intentional. We are not hiding it. We're not ashamed of it. In fact, we stand together in a room and sing out about how much we love and honor the God who saves us, who gave us life. 
Unlike all the idols of this world, the mute, blind, deaf idols of this world, the object of our worship can and will always be worthy. Worship takes on many different forms. We've already heard from Romans chapter 12, the idea of offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, because that is our spiritual act of worship. In the Old Testament, we see that followers of God, they sacrificed bulls and goats as their act of worship. Under the new covenant of love, we sacrifice ourselves as our act of worship. And so what that means, and and you probably already know this, is that you don't need a temple to worship God. You don't need an altar. You don't need to wear the right robes. You don't need to observe the right religious festivals. You don't need to memorize the right rituals in order to worship God. You can worship God anywhere. You can worship God in the way that you drive. You can worship God in the way that you parent your kids. You can worship God in the way that you play sports, the way that you are an employee or a boss or a student. You worship God in everything that you do. But based on the Bible, there is one form of worship that God likes seemingly more than any other form. And we've already been doing that together. And that's singing. God loves singing. He loves music. And so where do we get this idea from? Well, there's a lot of places throughout Scripture, and I want to run through them fairly quickly. I had a slide that listed them all, and then for whatever reason it didn't translate when I emailed it. But the first place is in Job 38. In Job 38, God is talking to Job, and he's talking to him about, where were you when I created all of this? And in chapter 38, he describes this process of creating the world. And he mentions that the morning stars sang together for joy. In some ways, our universe was created in song. Or song was a a response to the creation of the universe. The longest book of the Bible, Psalms, is really an ancient hymnal, a collection of songs. Part of our holy scripture are the songs that God has given us to sing. God's favorite method to speak to his prophets was poetry. Moses and Miriam and, and all of Israel, as soon as they finished crossing the Red Sea, they stopped what they were doing. And as a nation, they collectively wrote and sang a song of thanks to God for what he had done. All throughout the, New, the Old Testament, leaders from Deborah to King David, they write song after song after song to honor Israel's victories and God's faithfulness to his people. In the book of First Chronicles, chapter 25, as David and Solomon, as they're building the temple of God, God tells them to set aside 38,000 men to operate the temple. 38,000 Levites work in the temple. And of that group, 4,000 of them, their only job is music. 4,000 men in the temple of God singing and worshiping God day and night, offering song to our Lord. This is not Solomon's idea. This is not David's idea. This is an idea that came from God. Mary, the mother of Jesus, we don't get a lot of quotes from Mary But the longest passage of words that she says is found at the beginning of Luke. It's a song that she wrote. A song, a response to finding out that she would give birth to the Son of God. And the Son of God, Jesus, hours before his death, on the night of his betrayal and murder, he gathers together with his disciples, and one of the things that they do is they sing a hymn together. 
We're commanded not once, but twice in Paul's letters in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 to sing and make music in our hearts when we get together. John's vision in Revelation, we get a glimpse into the throne room of God. And there's a lot of things about Revelation that are confusing. There's a lot of imagery there. But one of the things that seems explicitly clear is that John tells us that the throne room of God is full and day and night. It's full of song. For all of eternity. Why does God like music so much? It's undeniable. It's obvious that he does. So why? I think some of this goes back to another question. And it's a question a little broader of what is music? Uh, My son Ethan, don't tell him I said this. He's in beginning band and we got him a saxophone. And so as he's been practicing, I've been asking myself that question. What is music? Um, I'm just kidding. He's, he's getting, he's fine. He's fine. He's going to be fine. What is music? What is music? So uh, the definition of music, vocal or instrumental sounds, both combined in such a way as to produce beauty of form, harmony. And the last part of the definition I think is important and an expression of emotion, an expression of emotion. As far back in time as we can go, as far back in culture as we can go, there is music found in every culture, the rhythm, the rhyme, the harmony, The making of music, the performing together of music has happened for as long back as we have record of. The thing that studies have found music has most in common with is language. We can communicate so much with music. Our words can be charged with more emotion and meaning when we sing these words. There's more of an emphasis on it. Let me give you an example. There's a story, and you've probably heard this story before, of a man named Horatio Spafford. And in the, the mid to late 1800s, when Horatio lived, there was a lot of bad stuff that happened to him. He lost his business in the Chicago fire. His son died of scarlet fever. Uh, at one point, he had sent his four daughters and his wife on a journey over to Europe. And on the way there, the boat capsized. A lot of people died, including his four daughters. The only survivor from his family was his wife who sent him a message that was just two words and the two words were saved alone. And so devastated, he goes to be with his wife who's alone. And on his journey there, the captain of the boat comes to him and says, hey, I'm not totally sure, but I think we're about to pass the place where the accident with your family happened. So you can imagine the emotion that Horatio Spafford was feeling. And that night in the boat, As he's passing by this plate, he he couldn't sleep. And so he wrote a song. And the song that he wrote, which is actually a song that we're going to sing here in just a minute, is, It is well with my soul. And if you think about the words to that song, the meaning behind them is significant when we know why it was written. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. The emotion behind that can be uh, communicated in a way that I think is much greater than when we just speak those words. Music, the songs that we sing in worship, they have meaning. A song like, He Has Made Me Glad, We sing that with joy. A song like when we all get to heaven takes on new meaning when we think about the people that we've lost in our lives and being reunited with them one day. 
A song like Holy, 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 we sing with reverent awe. A song that we sing a lot here at Regency, The Greatest Commands, Love One Another. I love that song. I love the thought behind it, the challenge that is given to us as we sing those words to God and as we remind each other of what the words of those songs are. Music is able to encompass the entire spectrum of emotions that we as humans can feel. And feeling something when we sing, hear me on this, feeling something when we sing, that is not in and of itself the goal. It's a response to the truth we are singing about God. When we sing, it's this combination of edification and an expression of our emotion. It's this combination of our mind and our heart working together to express something that we desire to our God in heaven. Here's the thing about worship. Some people, worship is not their favorite part. They maybe don't love singing. And so we view worship as a chore. We view worship as something that we have to do, as singing as something that we have to do. Worship isn't a chore. Worship is a gift. And let me explain why it's a gift. Worship and and music and singing, it isn't just tied to our hearts. It ties our hearts and our head together. There's a lot of studies done on music and memory Songs that maybe you could hear and you, you would never forget the words to those songs. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, God tells Moses to write a song. And the purpose behind him writing that song is so that the people of God will never forget what God had done for them. The book of Psalms over and over again is this message of not forgetting what God has done for his people. Paul in the book of Colossians says to sing and do it for the purpose of teaching and instructing. Music is a gift in worship. Singing to God is a gift. It reminds us of all the things that God has done for us. There's this powerful connection between our memory and music. The psychologist Dr. Oliver Sacks He's written a lot of books on the connection between music and memory. And he has this quote. He says, every culture has songs and rhymes to help children learn the alphabets, numbers, and other lists. Even as adults, we are limited in our ability to memorize series or to hold them in mind unless we use mnemonic devices or patterns. And the most powerful of these devices are rhyme, meter, and song. So much of what we do in church is really to trigger memories The Lord's Supper that we took just a moment ago. Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. It's to remind us of all the things that God has done for us. When we get together and sing, we remind ourselves who God is and what God has done for us. And we sing about it together. And we remind each other of the things that God has done for us. And God knew what he was doing when he created our brain's memory to respond to music. He knew when he created us that singing would cause this response to happen within us, to be reminded of the things that he's done. He knew what he was doing when he commanded us to sing. It's incredible to think about the fact that the voices in this room will join with the eternal song in the throne room of God himself one day. But for now, what we need to do is to not forget that we live every day on this earth surrounded by worshipers who are lost. You hear me on that? Every day we are surrounded by people who are worshiping something and they're lost. And so for us, we need to never forget 
that even as we gather in this room to sing our joy and to sing maybe our pain to God and to sing uh, these reminders of what he's done for us, and we do that honestly to God in conscious worship, we are aware of what we are doing. We live among millions of unconscious worshipers who are sleepwalking through life, thoughtlessly offering their devotion to the false gods of this world. Going back to our passage, Psalm 115, 1 through 8, this description of these false gods, we get these gods who are described as having blind eyes and mute mouths, deaf ears, empty hearts. And for us, we need to show them that this is what worship actually can be. We need to show them what worship should be. To share with them that the only object in the entire universe that is worthy of worship is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And a difference between our God and the gods that the world is worshiping is while the world's gods, their eyes are blind, our God's eyes truly see us for who we are and he loves us anyway. While the false gods, while their mouths don't speak, they're mute, our God's mouth spoke words of life and hope that we repeat to each other every single day. While the false gods, while their ears cannot hear, our God's ears hang on every word when we cry out to him. And while the false gods, while their heart is empty, our God's heart is filled and overflowing with endless love for each and every one of us. How can we hide our God from them? Knowing what we know about God, knowing what we know about worship, how can we stand in here and sing together and then try to just trap it in this room? That wouldn't make any sense. It goes beyond this place, our worship. And that's what worshiping on purpose looks like. Knowing what we know about the love of God, how can the love and worship of God be contained to just a room? It isn't. And so we need to show the world what worshiping on purpose, what worshiping God truly looks like. Here's the thing. God isn't after your voice. God is after your heart. He doesn't care if you can carry a tune. He doesn't care if you can sing on key. You know who you are. He doesn't care if you know the different parts of the words. He doesn't care if you know the harmony. He doesn't care if you have the words memorized. He cares about your hearts. In 2 Chronicles chapter 25, uh, this king Amaziah says that he reigned for 29 years. And then we get this description of him in verse 2. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. See, it's not enough just to do what's right. The heart matters behind it. When it comes to our worship, when it comes to our singing, when it comes to our praising God, whether it's in this place or in the way that we live our daily lives, God cares about our hearts. And he wants our whole heart. God is after your heart. He's after your passion. He wants your attention. He wants to be the object of your longing and desire and devotion. You're going to give it to someone. And giving it to anything other than God will not satisfy. This morning, the challenge I'd like to give us is for us to offer our Savior the worship that he deserves. And here and in our daily lives. To worship him on purpose. This week, let's offer our lost world a glimpse 
of the joy that we experience together every Sunday as we sing praises together to the God who created and loves us. This week, let's wake up and let's pay attention to the focus of our heart. Let's not sleepwalk through life unaware that we are worshiping a God that is not the one true God. Let's find any idols that we've placed on our hearts in the rightful place of the one true God. God will always deliver on his promises. God, who has placed in our heart the need to worship, just like he's placed within us the need to breathe. God, who alone in all of this great universe is the only one who is truly worthy of the praise of our mouths and our hearts and our lives. This morning, maybe you're here and you have been worshiping false gods. You recognize that you are worshiping something and it has not been the one true God who has your heart and you want to give it back to him. Or this morning, maybe you're here for the very first time. You want to give your heart fully to God. We would love to have that happen today. If you need prayers or encouragement, if you'd like to give your life to Christ through baptism, won't you come now as together we stand and sing.